Maybe you're a runner or a footballer, American or otherwise, or maybe you're posterizing your opponents on a 94 foot court or you're dunking on your kids in your driveway. Or maybe you're a cyclist pedaling down Route 66 or on a stationary bike in your basement. In any of these scenarios, chances are you know what it means to work out hard, to feel thirsty, or even dehydrated after all of those great post-workout endorphins subside. So let's talk about hydration. And for the fun of it, let's use as our example Rob Gronkowski, a tight end for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, Gronk is known for his relentless and impeccable discipline on the field and for his astonishing physical condition. A 31-year-old elite athlete who weighs 265 pounds and is 6 feet 6 inches tall. So let's say he exercises for two hours, pushing himself through another grueling NFL workout. A guy like Gronk could need to drink upwards of 24 cups of fluid to rehydrate from a workout like that. 24 cups. But what about a weekend warrior such as yourself? How much fluid do you need? Really, it depends on your age, your gender, how hard and how long you work out and how often, what you're wearing, whether you're inside or out in the fresh air, whether it's hot or cold. These are only some of the factors that influence your hydration status. But it's super important to think about these factors so you can ensure you take in enough fluid to replenish what you've lost. Now, I'm not here to tell you why. We'll let the expert do that. I'm Mara Bowen, podcasting for Abbott Nutrition Health Institute, and I'm here with Craig Horswell, who is a clinical associate professor of kinesiology and nutrition in the College of Applied Health Sciences at the University of Illinois at Chicago here in the United States. Dr. Horswell will discuss how performance affects hydration status. He'll explain the role of hydration before, during, and after exercise, and more. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Horswell. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So before we get started, I want to remind everyone we're still in the middle of a pandemic. We're playing it safe by social distancing. And by that, I mean Dr. Horswell and I are both dialing in for this discussion. So the sound quality of this recording may sound a little different from what you're used to hearing. I should also note that this recording is just the first in a three-episode series on hydration. In episode two, we'll discuss the science on hydration and how to know when you're dehydrated. And in the third episode, we'll talk about hydration across the lifespan. These episodes are full of useful information, and we hope you'll check back regularly to hear them all. So, Dr. Horswell, before we begin, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your background? Yeah, I'd be glad to. I really got interested in hydration and nutrition and everything as a wrestler at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, there I got my undergrad in natural sciences and then switched over in the field of exercise physiology for master's. Uh, following that and all the competition, I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, got my PhD. We did a lot with body composition there, but uh, you know, water is an important part of the composition, so I continued on that theme of hydration. Uh, from there, I went to uh, Ball State University for a couple of years, a major lab in sports nutrition and sports physiology then took a little bit of switch uh, in direction and ended up in Columbus, Ohio, for about six years at Children's Hospital studying growth and development of, of children and uh, metabolism of protein carbohydrate. I then spent 16 years in the food and beverage industry, specifically doing research and science support for uh, sports drinks, and then uh, now have been at University of Illinois at Chicago, or UIC as we say, for about 10 years doing research as well as teaching. Well, awesome. That's great background. And thank you for sharing that with us. Now, how about if we start today by talking about hydration for competitive athletes? Does that sound okay? Very good. Yeah, it's uh, an important group to address. Okay, great. So I know we teased this idea in the intro, but we already know hydration plays a huge role in how well a competitive athlete will perform. Can you talk about this for a moment? 
Yeah, if you consider that our, our bodies have a very substantial amount of water, uh, you know, if you look at the lean tissue, particularly with an athlete who has very little body fat, they're going to be about, about 65% water. And of their muscle mass alone, the fat-free tissue, it's about 70, almost 75% water. And that's in, in important places, such as in the muscle. It's also part of our vascular space. And it's very important in terms of uh, how our bodies operate and, and regulate, particularly when we're exercising and producing body heat. So as anyone who exercises regularly can say, it's important to hydrate before and during and after exercise, especially for elite performers. So why is this? And what role can hydration play in recovery? Yeah, as we exercise and generate body heat, we need to cool our bodies down. We have a very narrow range of body temperature in which we operate effectively. You know, too cool and we're going to suffer from hypothermia. And for too hot, you end up with a heat stroke or hyperthermia and actually could die from either of those. So this narrow range is important. And our body will uh, sweat as we get hotter. In other words, we're producing this layer of fluid on the surface of our skin. You could almost imagine the uh, analogy of putting rubbing alcohol on your finger and then waving it around in the air. You feel that cooling effect. Well, that's basically what the body does when we exercise. We produce this layer of fluid. It evaporates off of our skin, and essentially our body is boiling that off, and that removes heat from our body, dissipates the heat, and helps us keep that normal body temperature. Because of that sweating, we lose fluid from those important spaces that I mentioned, the muscle, cardiovascular space, and that affects our ability to keep going and also affects the regulation of our temperature. We heat up much faster if we're dehydrated than if we exercise when we're well hydrated. So it seems like our bodies send us cues to remind us to stay hydrated, right? What are some of those cues? For instance, is thirst a good indicator for athletes? It's okay. It actually lags behind our real need for fluid. It feels almost as if something goes wrong with our car engine. We don't see the light on the dashboard until we've already got a problem. And so as we develop a deficit in our bodies of fluid, the signals, a salty bloodstream or reduced blood volume kind of bathe the brain and alert our bodies to, to behave then as, as to go and drink. But that only happens after we've been set back that we're about 2% dehydrated. So as I was researching to prepare for this discussion, I came across a word, hyponatremia. What is it and what makes it a risky condition? And along those lines, how can athletes avoid it if they can? So I mentioned when we get thirsty, one of the signals is a more salty blood. We have sodium and we have chloride floating around in the body fluids that are outside of our cells. We call that the extracellular space. As we lose fluid, we lose water and we lose the sodium and chloride, our salts, as we sweat. But we lose the water in a greater proportion. So typically, that becomes a little more concentrated. In the case of hypo, low, below normal, nabe, or natra is sodium, if you think of the periodic table of elements, the Na sodium. And emia has to do with blood. So low sodium in our blood, we've either lost too much sodium or we've taken in too much water and diluted what we have. We've diluted the normal concentrations. When that happens, our bodies don't keep water in the right space. The salt, the sodium and chloride are very important in holding fluid in the extracellular, outside of the fluid space. And lacking that, too much fluid starts to move inside of our cells and they expand. Now, if those cells are, let's say, the brainstem 
in our brain, that starts to affect our breathing, our consciousness, everything. And that can be very drastic. Uh, people have actually died from drinking too much water. We need to be aware of that and not over drink when we exercise. So I'm guessing it would help our listeners to know what sports professionals recommend to elite athletes relative to appropriate fluid intake before, during, and also after a workout. So would you mind reviewing some of those guidelines for us? I'd be glad to. I'm going to preface it by saying these are merely guidelines. All of this has to be really customized and considered, as you mentioned at the beginning, the, the state of the person and a lot of other factors. But according to the American College of Sports Medicine, and this is in a physician stand that they issued about four years ago, 2016, that prior to exercise, maybe two to four hours, maybe as a part of the pre-event meal or pre-exercise meal, people could take in about five to 10 milliliters of fluid per kilogram body weight. So what does that translate into? Let's say you have a 154-pound person. It would be taking in about 12 ounces up to maybe about 24 ounces or about a, a pint and a half of fluid just to make sure that they start their exercise session well hydrated or normally hydrated. During exercise, and, and this is, again, based on sweat rates of uh, athletes and exercisers that have been reported in the literature, a consumption of about 0.4 to 0.8 liters per hour, or you could say uh, 0.4 to 0.8 quarts per hour, roughly, would be about right to cover most people's sweat rate. So again, we're losing fluid to keep our bodies cool. We want to replace that. And that range typically mirrors what most people will lose during exercise. Now, certainly not everybody, and we mentioned the football player at the beginning of our podcast, that that, that individual may sweat at much higher rates. Afterwards, if a person is in a deficit, let's say that you drank fluids, but you got done exercising and you're two pounds lighter than you started. Well, that represents 32 ounces of fluid. You're, you're dehydrated. You've, you're, you're down that amount of fluid. So it's been recommended that you consume a little bit more than you normally just to help make sure or ensure that you're normally hydrated for the next exercise bout, the next competition. That's the range that you want to be in. That kind of helps make sure that you put enough back in the body and compensates for some of the urine losses that will occur during that recovery period. Do you have any thoughts on how our listeners can take these recommendations and apply them by creating a personalized hydration plan? Yeah, it's rather simple. The advice really is to weigh in and out before and after the exercise occasion. You know, we always think of exercising and losing weight for health reasons, but in that short of a period, acute weight change is fluid loss and primarily water loss. And that's really what we want to place. If you think back, I mentioned earlier that these fluids come out of our lean tissues, the muscle, the bloodstream. Those are the places that we need to replace the water. And so weighing in and out around the exercise occasion is a good way to monitor your fluid loss and allow you to create the strategy, you know, how much do you need to replace when you're sweating and when you're doing that workout again in subsequent times. You also want to account for changes in the weather too or the heat of the environment that you're in. If it's going to be hotter, you're probably going to sweat at a higher rate, so you might have to adjust that upward. So let's switch gears just slightly and talk about recreational athletes. You know, we're pounding the pavement too, so what do we need to know? Starting with the anatomy of sweat, I know that you've mentioned that sweat is primarily water, but what else do you lose while you're sweating and why? So water, but also there's a lot of the electrolytes lost, the salts that we talked about. So the sodium and uh, chloride and some potassium, and there may be some trace amounts of other things such as calcium, magnesium, maybe some iron. It would 
take quite a bit of sweating and a very poor diet to really cause a, a calcium deficit or iron deficit. But the sodium and the chloride are lost in very high levels. And those are the things that are important to, to replace because those are the things that hold the fluid back in our body and allow us to rehydrate. We simply drank a bolus of water alone, that tends to just run through us, even if we're dehydrated. But having a little sodium chloride in it helps the body hold on to it long enough so it can redistribute into the places within our muscle and other places to, to help totally rehydrate the body. Now, you've talked about how clinicians assess hydration in those elite athletes, but what about recreational athletes? Is it a different assessment process? So it's really not. It's, it's the same thing. Now, it's kind of funny. The elite athletes that are heat adapted in that, they will often have lower levels of electrolytes in their sweat. They do a better job. Their body's been trained to do a better job of holding on to those and just producing a very dilute sweat. Whereas recreational athletes, particularly maybe not as fit or not heat adapted, will have higher levels. So, you know, there's a little bit of a trade-off. They, they may have higher levels, but maybe they're not sweating enough. They're not doing what the football players would be doing, and they don't have the insulation as the, of the uniforms and equipment to promote more sweating. Weighing in and out, watching the urine color are good ways to, um, to also help them in terms of knowing what their hydration needs are and, and staying on top of that. So along those lines, though, how can recreational athletes assess their own hydration status at home? I imagine some of those steps like weighing in and out and checking the color of your urine and those types of things would be the same. Is there anything else? They can do that. That's definitely um, wise. They, you can typically buy the dipsticks at the local pharmacy that would tell you the urine-specific gravity. If they really want to get technical, they can typically buy or you can buy a refractometer to measure that and give you a number rather than just a category of where you fall. There are some other tests that are, you know, gross measures, you know, pinching the skin on the back of your hand and dryness, even sometimes, you know, headaches can be a symptom of being dehydrated. So some of those kind of signs and symptoms might also be worth watching, but the risk probably of dehydration, recreational athletes is a little lower since their sweat rates may not be quite as high as the elite athletes. So you've touched already on how dehydration is dangerous. So what are we really trying to say here? What what impact does even mild dehydration have on exercise and just on your overall well-being? So we think that about 2% dehydration impacts our endurance, you know, physical endurance. So, you know, we're talking about a 150-pound person being down three pounds. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot to do that. Even overnight sleeping in eight hours, you can lose two, easily two pounds through water vapor lost in our breath insensible water loss off our skin. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to lose fluid. Our bodies are always losing fluid. And our only route of intake or putting it back is by drinking. That's uh, an issue, 2% or more. And the greater dehydration, the more impact that's going to have in a negative way on our performance. But there's research to show that even less than that, between 1% and 2%, can impact our physical ability and even some effects on cognitive function. Certainly, the, the more dehydrated, the more stressed we feel, harder it is to concentrate, short-term memory, executive function can all be impacted by that. There's even, even some interesting research showing that while people who had been deprived of water for a 24-hour period induced about 2% of dehydration, their cognitive function could be maintained, but it was much more challenging 
when they asked the rating of how hard it was to do that replicate their cognitive function test, they said it was much more stressful, much more hard, much harder to concentrate on doing the test. So it's interesting how that dehydration can have an impact on you know direct measures, but also some of the indirect measures of how we feel and how stressful things are. All right. That's great. One final question for you. So what are some common challenges in hydrating enough before and during and after exercise? For instance, what are some quick and easy ways to overcome those challenges? So there, there are a lot of barriers, obviously. I mean, when we sweat, when our kidneys are continually producing urine, when we're breathing, we have water loss. So we have three or four routes of water loss and only one replacement, and that's through our mouth. One barrier is just the opportunity. Do I have a bottle within arm's reach? Do I have a timeout or an opportunity to go get that if it's a ways away from me? Does it taste good? Does it encourage me to drink? You know, a little bit of salt in the beverage will often do that, stimulate our thirst so we drink enough and don't fall short. If we have extremely high sweat rates, back to that example of the football player that you mentioned, We've seen some football players that can lose 16 to 18 pounds in a two-hour workout. That's a challenge to keep up and replace that as you go during the practice. And if that player only has three hours between two-a-day training, he definitely is coming back in the afternoon session in a deficit. He's not going to have an opportunity to totally replace it. Now he's got another practice in the heat of the day that further puts him behind. So, you know, the composition of the fluid can help. If it's poorly tolerated or slowly absorbed by the body, people tend to have GI distress or more GI distress, or they feel full and bloated, they're less likely to drink. So so all of those considerations, I think uh, setting up strategies or when to drink, trying to keep up with what you're losing, drinking products that uh, get absorbed quickly and less likely to promote GI distress are all things that the athlete can take into uh, consideration to help design an overall program that helps prevent dehydration. Well, this was great, Dr. Horswell. And, uh, you know, the details you've shared are incredibly helpful and best of all, easy enough to apply to our next workout. So we really want to thank you for that. And thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. And I hope uh, the listeners get a lot out of it and do a good job of staying hydrated and preventing hyponatremia at the same time. Excellent. And for our listeners, I mentioned at the beginning of this recording that we're developing two additional hydration-related podcast episodes for your listening pleasure. You'll be able to find these and many other episodes on health and nutrition by typing anhi.org into your browser, clicking resources, and then podcasts and videos. And if you become an anhi.org member today, which you can do by clicking register at the top of our homepage, you'll receive regular nutrition science news updates from our team. And of course, you can also follow the Abbott Nutrition Health Institute on LinkedIn. And then finally, our website, anhi.org, has a series of printable resources related to topics like this. And you can find these resources on anhi.org by clicking resources and printable materials. In fact, we have a great infographic on hydration and we hope you'll check it out. Anyway, look, do what both your mama and your coach said. Drink your fluids. Thanks, everyone. Stay healthy and safe.